Hello and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, it's right about the holiday season and we figured that holiday season is a good time to take some questions. So today we've got a two-part episode. In the first part of the episode, we're going to take some questions. We're fortunate that a lot of different people have sent us questions uh, on a variety of different topics. And then we'll take a quick break and then we'll talk a little bit about some of the case changes, some of the stuff that happened at the mid-year board meeting, and what to look forward to as we move into the AMTA portion of the season. Uh, Drew, I mean, it's been a couple, uh, it's been over a month now, I guess, since we talked. So how have things been for you since the last episode? Uh, It's going pretty well. It's the first night of Hanukkah that we're recording this, so I'm glad to be home for the holidays. But uh, Mm -hmm. it's been exciting. Went to Yale's tournament, got to watch some rounds there. Uh, And that was a very interesting tournament. I think that, like you said, there's a lot to talk about, and I'm just going to, most for the most part, we'll get into it when we get into it. Okay. Well, let's start with our first question. Uh, I'm going to ask the first question because I have absolutely no information to add to the answer to the first question. Uh, So this first question came from Facebook. It came from Bo and He, uh, and it's in response to something that Drew said, uh, I think, on our last episode. And it says that Drew made a reference in our last episode to, and I'm sure you all know that because, of course, you listen to all of our episodes. But for those of you who maybe (laughs) missed it, uh, it says, I actually started mock trial in high school in Massachusetts, so I'm quite fond of the program. And I was wondering about some of the specific criticisms you, meaning Drew, had. So, Drew, what do you got? Well, first of all, I'll I'll start by saying props to you for starting uh, mock trial in high school. I think it's great to start mock trial in high school. I did as well. Um, I don't think that Massachusetts is substantially worse than other high school mock trial. I think a lot of my criticisms are general to high school mock trial. The specific problems I have with the Massachusetts that's done the mock trial that's done in Massachusetts high school uh, level, I guess, um, are a couple of things. The first and foremost is the fact that they do their trials in the form of a bench trial instead of a jury trial. I think that it's really good practice to to argue to a jury to get in practice of okay, I need to assume this person knows nothing about the case. How do I? explain to them what I want to teach them. And I think that by having this done by a judge who is supposed to be pretty well attuned to the facts, I think kind of takes away from a lot of the pretty important aspects, in my opinion, of mock trial of trying to communicate what you know so well to someone that knows nothing about it. Um, I'll also say that I really don't like the fact that you get the same amount of time for each of your directs and each of your crosses. I like when you kind of have a little more freedom to give as much time as you want to uh, to any one direct or any one cross. You know, probably not advisable to spend all of it on one direct or cross. But uh, the way that they have it set up, you have specifically seven minutes for each direct and specifically five minutes for each cross. So. Even if you want to make your defendant cross a little bit longer than the random character that has nothing to do with the case, you can't. They have to be the same length. Um, so I just I think that that, again, kind of forces you into certain things that mean that crosses are, are a little bit less interesting than they could be if you had more time or if you had the ability to do a little bit of less time on another. Uh, along that same line, I also am not a huge fan of the fact that witnesses only get one score. I think that witnesses are a very important part of mock trial. I think that witnesses deserve to be scored just as much as the attorneys. And I think that by giving them only one score, it it just allows for witnesses to A, be maybe undervalued, and B, I think that it means that 
at least in my my head, I feel like a lot of the time witnesses may get a score written down early that then doesn't get changed through the cross-examination because in the mind of the judge, they've already seen them act and do all these great things during the direct. So I think that it means that you may get really fighty witnesses that can get away with that without getting a really bad cross score because they've already gotten a good direct score and that is the only score that ends up counting. Um, and along with scoring, I, I don't love the really vague kind of you get a bonus five points or lose five points at the end of the trial based on the judge's discretion of how nice you are or how rude they think you are. Um, I think it's nice to have kind of this, you know, let's be nice and be polite and, and to have good courtroom decorum. But I think it's just really vague. And I think that it, it's really just not clear to me right now how exactly those scores are going to look. If it ends up that every judge kind of gives teams pretty similar scores and it's not very impactful, then that's fine. But to me right now, it just it sounds kind of vague, and I just worry that judges are going to score it in very different ways based on their personal like, which, of course, you have to deal with in any situation, but it just kind of adds that a little bit more for me, and I, I don't love that. And the last thing I'll say is specific to this year. I just really don't like the case that they have this year. I think that this year's case, um, obviously for, for those that don't know, this year's case essentially is a, uh, a, a student in high school who is competing for a, a trumpet competition and they lose to their big rival and they basically claim that their rival cheated to win. And they wrote a, uh, they tweeted about it. They wrote a Facebook post about it and they made a YouTube video basically ridiculing this person and calling them a cheater and stirring up a ton of drama about it. And it, it leaks into the school and it becomes an issue at the school and people are talking about it at school. Uh, you know, it's making the school look bad that their winner was actually a cheater and all this other stuff. Basically the kid gets suspended and, you know, loses out on a couple of other um, opportunities that they would have had because they were suspended and they're now suing the school. The reason why I have a problem with that whole case is that what most of the witnesses are talking about is whether or not this kid actually cheated. But in my mind, that's not really the legal issue that we're here to discuss. Whether or not this kid should have been suspended or not, they have this whole code of ethics that says like if you, you know, are committing a libelous act, that that's a problem. But at the end of the day, we're discussing whether or not that code of ethics was was fair, whether it was actually uh, violating the student's freedom of speech and procedural due process. And the issue of whether or not they actually were right doesn't make it doesn't make a difference in my mind. I think that it it doesn't really affect the case. Of course, it certainly helps the plaintiff if you can say, "Look, he was right. The school refused to look into it." But it doesn't change the fact that it could still be in violation of this code of ethics and could, in fact, still be completely within the school's rights for them to to uh, to suspend the student. So I just think that that makes it kind of a boring case and means that to a certain extent, a lot of the witnesses really don't matter. And when you double that with the fact that you have to give all this direct and cross time to each witness, I think that it just makes for kind of a boring type of mock trial. And I'm not asking for every trial to be a murder case, but I just think that this one is not my favorite. Um, I hope that that is enough of an explanation, though, on my dislike of high school mock trial in Massachusetts. I'm still excited to coach it. I think it'll be a lot of fun. I'll see how it goes when we get into the competition season. But those are kind of my thoughts right now. Um, ben, I, I don't think you probably have much to add. 
Yeah. So the only thing I would say to that is, is I, I don't have any experience with Massachusetts high school mock trial and probably never will have any. But the one thing I will say in relation to the score having to do with like non like sort of the, the like decorum score or whatever, uh, those are bad and they should not exist in any situation ever. Uh, Maryland has one and I'm fighting to get rid of it because they're like, in my opinion, a hotbed for implicit bias. Uh, I think like mock trial is already wildly subjective, even in a, as a numerically scored activity. And when you say like, hey, on top of the already like subjective numbers that you've given to each individual performance, just kind of toss a number out there for like how you think that team was in terms of like, I don't know, being nice and using objections. And it's like, wait, what? Those things don't have anything to right, do with right. each other. And also like the whole point of this activity is that the judge is supposed to have control over the individual scores. But like, they're not, you know, uh, so I couldn't agree more about that. Maryland has something similar that I am fighting to get rid of. And I love so much. I think there are many things about AMTA system that could be improved. The fact that those types of scores do not exist is fantastic. Well, to move on to our next question, we're going to try to get through a lot of these. Uh, The second question, um, we're going to go to one from the impeachment site, which for those that don't know, it's kind of what has replaced perjuries um, as the new go-to forum on mock trial. But uh, Danny Dawson's BAC on impeachments wrote, uh, basically asked us what we thought the sleeper teams outside of the usual contenders that could make a run at nationals. um, Are are there any consistent national teams that we think could make the leap this year? Uh, And they also branched off to say, uh, asked what the most distinct teams specific styles were that we've seen on the circuit and how we would describe them um i'll kind of start with this one i don't think i've seen a ton of teams uh so far Uh, i saw south carolina this last weekend at yale and i actually was really impressed by them i'd never seen south carolina go before i'd love to give them a shout out of just i thought that they were fantastic and i know they were a team that kind of was kind of the Cinderella story of last year. Um, but I think that, you know, they proved to me at least that they, they were there because they were talented. It was not a luck thing. They're going to be back is my expectation. And I think that they will probably continue to see a lot of success. They're a really, really strong program. Um, other than that, I, I think for most part, it's been some of the usual suspects. I mean, we see a lot of the usual suspects winning invites and it's because they're still pretty darn good. So, I mean, Chicago, Yale, you know, that, they're all pretty good, honestly. Ben, do you have any others that you'd want to throw in? Uh, I can't think of a whole lot. I think in our last episode, I mentioned Patrick Henry. They had a lot of success in some of the earlier fall invites. I've seen, you know, it's always tough because I'm like, I've seen several good teams and they were good. You know, I scouted Chicago at Gamte. I thought they were really good. Uh, we played Ohio State. I thought they were really good. We played Michigan and Northwestern and Wesleyan, and I thought they were all really good. Uh, you know, we played Howard, and I thought they were good. So, like, I, you know, it's always weird being in the Northeast because it's very unlikely that we'll hit, you know, one of these regular Northeast, you know, sort of strong programs, and they're not particularly strong. So, I don't think I have like a sleeper team that. Like I've seen do something that shocked me in terms of like, oh, this team is going to crush it. Um, I, I mentioned this before we got on the mic, and, and this is not a sleeper team whatsoever. Uh, I was pretty impressed with Emery when we saw them at GMT. thought they were super crisp, uh, extremely likable. Uh, thought they did a really excellent job. Uh, but, I mean, that's about it. I, there's a lot of good teams out there, especially, I think, in our region. 
Yeah, I, I honestly agree. I think that sleeper is just tough. Uh, and I, one thing I will say just about the general format of nationals, I think it's really hard for programs that are on the younger side or just are you know, not as established as these kind of elite programs are at going to nationals year after year. Preparing a case in a month is something that you just kind of have to figure out how to do it right. And the programs that go there year after year have figured out systems and have figured out ways to do it. And I think that it makes it kind of hard for a sleeper team to make it to that final round level. Certainly possible to place and to, to do exceptionally well. But that national finals round, I mean, you've seen it. If you look at who those teams are year after year, it's the same group of like five or six teams because those are the ones that have really figured it out. And I don't really expect that to change if I'm being honest. Um, so to, to move on to the second part of the question about the distinct team-specific styles, um, I, I'm going to kind of group this into general regions. Um, I don't think we've ever formally talked about what we think the different uh, regional styles are. But I think that team-specific kind of goes to the same point. Um, I think that there is this style of the Northeastern, really elite, non-coached programs. I'm thinking of Tufts and Yale when I say this. Um, they're super creative. They do these really dramatic theories that have really intelligent, um, well-weaved witnesses that that are lining up very specifically to what their case theory is. Um, it makes the witnesses really hard to cross, um, but it's not always super believable. It's kind of going for the out there effect. Um, on the other hand, you have the Southern kind of really elite, heavily coached programs like UVA and Rhodes. Um, they're all really, really cool, calm, collected, really clean. You're not going to see them make a lot of mistakes, but if I'm being honest, like they're on the more boring side. Like I don't think that they do a lot of really crazy case theories. They kind of just do what's going to be simple, straightforward, and they do it better than anyone else. And moving beyond, you know, the East Coast, I think you see a lot of Midwestern programs that are really strong go really heavily for like realistic. Like they're going for what's real, what makes sense. Again, that's not a blanket statement for all of them. I know that like Ohio State and Northwestern definitely do not necessarily fall under that. But I think that a lot of the other powers in that area, and I should say Chicago too, but I, I do think that some of the other um, strong programs in the Midwest tend to go for this kind of very hyper-realistic um, trying to emulate what real court would look like. Um, and then the West Coast, um, to in like UCLA or, or Stanford, um, or UC Berkeley or Irvine, I think that they go almost to me kind of more similar to what the Northeast that I was mentioning looks like, where they go, you know, really heavily dramatic witnesses, um, just exciting dramatic mock trial that sometimes can be less polished, but, um, you know, always kind of has that dramatic flair. But, um, I think that's as specific as I can really get. I, you know, at the end of the day, teams kind of adapt to what the case is. So those are kind of my thoughts. Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't have, you know, like I kind of agree with what Jack Siegenthaler said a while back when we talked to him and, and Tom Shear about just like, I, I tend to think that some of that is overblown. Like to me, what I'm most, when I think about stylistic stuff, like if if we're way out of our element, you know, like, okay, in, in law school, I competed in Texas four times. I was a very different mock trial competitor in the Deep South than I was 
in, you know, when we were competing at DC. Uh, and so like, I think more about like teams that adapt depending on where they go. You know, I remember way back talking to Nick Ramos and he was not overly thrilled about, you know, the Minnesota judging and how they perceived NYU style, which like, I guess a bunch of folks from NYU and a bunch of folks from Minnesota not seeing eye to eye is not the most shocking thing that the world has ever seen. But I, I think, I don't know. I, I tend to agree with you that I think the Midwest maybe tends to be a little bit more realistic. The Northeast, I, it's kind of what I was going back to with the first part of the question. There's a lot of really good teams that tend to be really sharp, tend to be really crisp, have very interesting witnesses. And beyond that, I'm not really sure that I could pick out individual teams that do certain things that I think are like particularly like crazy or notable. I think that for the most part, I think this was Jack who said this to us. Good mock trial is good mock trial. So the next question we've got, uh, this was one that came to us via email came from Claire Gardner. It's an interesting, interesting question. It says, what would you say is your biggest advice for high school students who hope to try out for and participate in strong college mock trial programs? Are there certain qualities that are important to just have right off the bat? What did you, what have you observed the transition to be like onto a college team for other new college freshmen who did high school mock? So I'm going to jump in real quick on this one and then I'll kick it to you, Drew. Uh, and I'm going to focus on two things uh, as someone who you know, deals with having people who did high school mock trial try out every year. And we take some and we don't take some. The number one thing in my opinion, and this is just what I look for when I'm looking for someone to add to my program is comfort walking in the door with arguing the rules of evidence, which is probably a little bit more specific than some people would expect. But like I can teach basically anything, right? To varying degrees of success. But like I can teach you how to stand. I can teach you how to project. I can teach you how to place your hands, you know, but only you can take the initiative to know the rules and to know the rules to a degree where you're going to be able to have an advantage over other people. Uh, if you walk in the door with some degree of comfort with knowing the rules, understanding what hearsay is, understanding what character evidence is, understanding what authentication is, and you know, understanding expert witnesses and being able to handle that information, that gives you a leg up because I do not need to spend as much time and devote as much resources uh, teaching you something that is very challenging for people to grasp. And then the second thing is, like, do not think that any preconceived notions have to stay the way that they are. Right. The first thing that I tell people who walk in the door from good high school programs who have an established way of doing things is I say, cool, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad you have experience. Everything that your high school coach taught you, I want you to now throw out the window because ultimately, like UMBC's program is modeled after the style that I want it to be modeled after. And we have other, you know, assistant coaches and captains and stuff like that. But we have a very distinct style. We have a UMBC way that we teach. And I have had high school competitors who have come in, lasted a semester. They couldn't break out of how they did in high school. And they constantly would tell me about how they did it in high school. And I would constantly remind them politely that I don't care. And like that ultimately you need to do things the way that we teach. And they've left because they weren't coachable. Not in the sense that they like, if someone tells me I disagree with something I said, that's fine. I, that's part of the process. And I trust my students to do that. But as high school competitors, if you think that everything you did in high school is going to transport you to the top of the pack immediately in college, 
my opinion is in the better programs, you're going to be sorely mistaken. So I would say come in with a basic base of knowledge, particularly as it has to do with the rules and arguing objections and be coachable, be willing to listen, be willing to adapt. Those are the two big things that I look for. Uh, I have to say that I agree with most of what you said, Ben, if not all of it. Um, To me, the biggest thing is coachability. I think that I just – Ben's right. We can teach you how to do most of this stuff, but we can't teach you to be willing to listen. Um, And that is really big to me is coachability. I think that on a very, very basic level – comfortability and confidence with your voice like really needs to be there to a certain extent i have time to teach courtroom decorum how to write across how to write a direct how to do all that stuff but you know especially as a team as a program that doesn't really have formal coaches um you know we have alums that come to tournaments and watch and and give feedback and write edits on google docs that's about as much as we do um we we don't have time to to you know, to teach someone how to speak confidently. To be frank, um, if you're not doing it already, like you kind of need to figure it out on your own, and that's something that I think as a student-run program, I think student-run programs look a little bit more for that initial level of competence, um, just so that they can you know get into it and not be totally lost. At the end of the day, this is a performance activity, and you need to be able to perform. But other than that, I agree with Ben. It's about coachability. It's about willing to learn. And to something that Ben was talking about of, you know, when you're from a really strong high school mock trial program, I'm not saying that you should ever lie during your tryout. But if you don't have to say it, I would not be forthcoming with the fact that you did high school mock trial unless you did it, you know, I'm hesitant not even to say unless. Like, to be frank, like high school mock trial and college mock trial are very different. And people that kind of have a set in their way, like this is how I do mock trial, that's normally not going to gel very well. And on top of that, when you come in saying, I know how to do mock trial, I'm really good at it. And then your tryout is kind of meh. I'm going to take someone that says they have no public experience, public speaking or mock trial or debate or anything experience, but they were just as good as you because I see that person's ceiling as being way higher. So again, you know, you should never lie about it. But I mean, I do think that we want to, we want people that are willing to learn and willing to adapt. And sometimes, you know, being from a quote established program that already has their way of doing things can sometimes hurt you in that way. Um, That being said, being good at mock trial already and already knowing the rules has been said and just knowing how all this works is certainly going to give you a leg up as it should um, for any tryout. And yeah, I think that if you do those things, you're, you're probably going to be fine. If you're listening to this podcast, it means that you're enough of a mock trial nerd that I'm sure you'll find a spot on some team somewhere. So if we're going to move on um, from the high school world, which we love getting questions from our high school students, we're happy to answer more. Um, But going back to impeachments um, from Super Soups, um, a bit of a shout out to the Hendricks case. Uh, We had the question, in all the years you guys have been involved in AMTA as competitors or coaches, what would you say your favorite case was? Um, I love this question. I talk about it a lot. Uh, the State v. Bancroft case was my favorite. I just really, really loved it. It was the first case that I ever actually got to do, and I fell in love with it. Um, I think that it just had a really fun and just 
cool expert in Pat Sikorsky that had all this really fun forensic analysis that I don't think we've really gotten to do true, you know, DNA forensics since. Um, and just in general, I think that it was a, a really well done case that had a lot of interesting theories and roads that it could go down, a lot of fun, interesting witnesses, plenty of options for the defense. Uh, you know, you could choose which defendant to go after. So I, I really liked that aspect of it. Um, ben, what was your favorite? So this is an easy one for me. And I think it is one that uh, is not necessarily agreed by most people. But my favorite is the first case I ever did, which is State v. Danny Dawson. Uh, we had an earlier question from Danny Dawson's PAC, which is a, a reference to that case. Uh, and that was a drunken driving murder case. There are a couple of things that I really liked about that case. First of all, I thought it was a really important issue to talk about. I think like I am not someone who thinks like every mock trial case must like be like educationally crucial for students to learn from, you know, like like uh, last year's case about training a monkey, like didn't have a whole lot of context for I'm guessing most I mean who knows maybe some of you but for the vast majority of you probably will never come up so I don't necessarily buy that but drunk driving I think is something that uh is important for people to talk about and to talk about openly uh and candidly amongst your peers and so I think like that was important I thought it was a well-written case uh, I thought it had some really interesting expert witnesses uh I liked there was a police officer who had some testimony that was admissible if you could get it in but not uh it had an audio recording which i think a lot of people don't know a lot of people who are current competitors there was actually an audio exhibit um fun fact uh, the audio exhibit you could only use it on a boom box uh with a cd and you could not plug it in uh so you had to use batteries and i have never purchased more d batteries in my entire life than that season d batteries do not stay in boom boxes it, it was that setup was not great, but it was actually an audio recording of the victim, Vanessa Sullivan, calling her father as she's being driven home, and it captures her last moments, including the scream before she dies. It was very intense. It was a very well done exhibit. And quite frankly, you know, you guys who've listened to this before hear me talk about the trial realism. I thought it was exceptionally realistic. I thought it was powerful, I thought it was moving. And when you used it in the right context, I thought it really brought the trial into the real world in a way that I feel like a lot of cases are not able to do. Uh, I just, you know, I have a little bit of affection for that case too, because my younger brother, Zach, who competed in our program for five years, and he and I overlapped for two years. He's an assistant coach with us now, pretty decorated witness during his five years. Uh, he was my Danny Dawson. I directed him as Danny Dawson, and we had a lot of fun with that direct in our first year's program. So I... I got to go with Dawson. There's been some other great cases. I loved the one the following year, Neptune. I thought that had some great experts and some great characters. But if you forced me to pick, I'd go all the way back to my first one and go with State v. Dawson. Isn't it interesting that we both chose the first case that we ever did? I think that, that kind of says a lot to like mm -hmm. what kind of gets you into mock trial yeah. is what kind of makes you stick with it. But uh, there was a second half to this question. They asked, is there any particular case topic you'd like to see him to try to tackle in the future? Um uh, this is a great question. I think that I, I I hadn't really, I don't know. I think that if I wanted them to tackle a case, I think that to what Ben was just saying, I think that issues that are important to all of us that are affecting things today, um, I think that issues like that are really important and interesting to discuss. But I think in a, a way that's, I hesitate to say the word safe, but you know, 
not going to be damaging to people is how I'll frame it. Um, for example, you know, when we talk about uh, the case changes a bit, one of the things that we'll, I'm sure, bring up is the fact that there were these stipulations added about you know, not doing a case that involves suicide or anything like that. You know, things like that can just be really damaging and hard for people to hear. So I think that if there's a way for us to engage with some of these really important issues that are going on today without being harmful for people, you know, that's the best way to do it. I'm not going to pretend to have an outline ready, but uh, if someone can figure out a way to do that, I think it'd be a really interesting case. So mine, when the case preview for the State v. Hendricks case came out, I listened to the case preview, and I don't remember exactly what it was about the preview, but I remember th- reading it and thinking that that was going to be an indirect murder case, meaning that it was going to be a murder for hire case. Um, I think it was something about like, you know, how much do you love, you know, so and so? Would you do you even love so them so much that you would hire someone or convince someone to kill them? Uh, something like that. Uh, and I remember thinking that's what it was going to be. So we did our off season prep, thinking it was that. I was very wrong. Um, I think that's an interesting issue. I think you run into very interesting questions of like uh, culpability and reasonable doubt. Uh, I think it would be a challenging thing to write a balanced criminal case in an indirect murder situation where the person on trial is the person who hired the hit person. But imagine you could have a prosecution witness who was the actual murderer, the person who committed the murder, who is now pled and flipped and (laughs) is testifying against the person. the only other situation, similarly, so uh, when I was a clerk, uh, my 2L year in federal court, um, we had a case, it was a bank robbery, and the woman on trial was the bank manager. Uh, and it was essentially an inside job case, and she got caught in an impeachable situation and as ended up ultimately being found guilty. And it was, like I said, it was kind of an inside job where the, the, one of the people inside the bank flipped on her. And that case has fascinated me ever since. I've written some early treatments for like a possible high school case based on that issue. So I, I like, like I like the idea of like inside job or indirect murder cases where you're dealing with a lot of like complicated hearsay evidence and a little bit less of like blunt force and more you know blunt force in the metaphorical sense I should say uh, and you know more of like oh let's work our way around this issue and talk about like you know how do we find our way to a certain conclusion. So I don't know. I think honestly, generally Empta does a pretty decent job of um, selecting case topics, maybe, you know, with the exception of almond milk. Uh, but like, aside from that, I think they do a pretty solid job. That, that case you're talking about that you did in your 2L year, you were saying, Ben, when uh, the real case sounds eerily like the Parker Barrow case that we had two years ago. Yeah, there's some pretty there's some similarities. Well, it's there. funny because that was, that was close to being uh, the one that I was going to say it was my favorite. I, I don't actually think it was like such an amazing case, but it was just like so much fun to do to be at Nationals and do it. So like for me, I think that it's – it's definitely overrated in my mind for the context surrounding it, but I actually do think it's really fun to have that, you know, Floyd where they're like, yeah, I know they did it. Like I was in on it. Um, and you know, how, how you write a case balanced around that is you make that person seem really uncredible. So it was a lot of fun. Moving on to our next question. Uh, this question is another question that was posted on impeachments from, but it actually updates. Uh, and, and they ask, do you feel like mock trial is starting to lose its educational value and purpose as a result of the increasingly competitive nature of the activity? Uh, and my answer to the, 
this is yes to the first half, but not because of the second half. So I do think that there's a degree to which mock trial is starting to lose uh, its educational value and purpose. Uh, I don't think it's severe, but I do think that I struggle to put my finger on exactly what I think the problem is. I don't think it's because the activity is increasingly competitive. In fact, I think that is helping to increase the educational value because if you want to leave mock trial with a strong knowledge of the rules of evidence and trial procedure and how to craft an effective direct examination and cross-examination, you can't mail it in, right? You can't just be like, oh, I'm charismatic. I'm just going to walk in the room and figure it out. Like, yeah, that might work against a team that's not really prepared. But the first time you walk into a room and the other team is from a great program, you're going to get stomped. And that's quite frankly, in my opinion, from an educational perspective, the way it should be, uh, because you should be challenged when you're going into an educational activity. I do think that mock trial has like, we're at an interesting crossroads here. Uh, I don't know how much of it has to do with invention of fact, but I do think some of it does, right? One of the things we didn't get a lot into with the Yale episode and the final round episode is like the Jurassic principle, the Jurassic park principle, the like, you know, you spend so much time thinking about you, whether you could, that you didn't stop to think about whether you should. Uh, and I think that is getting lost a little bit that I think teams are pushing the boundaries in ways that don't necessarily further an educational mission because they think that they can slip it into the rules and because they understand what a lot of AMTA competitors understand, which is there are areas of the AMTA rules that are ineffective in combating cheating. Not that they're bad, but no, this is a subjective activity. No rule can cover every single scenario. But there are rules in our rule book there at the very beginning about ethics and fair play. And I think those are really important. And I think that if we spent a little bit more time as an as a like community saying yeah maybe we could get away with this theory that lightly applies like lightly implies that there was a child predator at the campsite that day but like should we should we imply that no we really shouldn't because that's I mean, pardon me but that's kind of a shitty thing to imply and i think it's kind of inappropriate and could be really upsetting to some people uh and is also really difficult to fight back against so it's a very abstract question and it's a hard thing to answer, but my basic answer to it is I do think that we're in a little bit of a concerning place where this activity maybe doesn't have the same level of edu educational value that it has always had, but I think that is more the responsibility of the community at large, and I don't really think it has anything to do with the overall competitive nature of the activity. So I think that I agree with a lot of what Ben just said. I think that the competitive side of it is definitely not the the problem area. Um, I I don't think that there there is much of a problem area for me. I think that mock trial is extraordinarily educational. I think that it's not a coincidence that a lot of the top mockers go to top law schools. You got to be really smart to be really good. Um, you just it's it requires a lot of 
of quick thinking and of skills that that will help you a ton later on in life. And I think that that is a ton of educational value. And as we get more and more competitive, it makes people work that much harder to be good. So I definitely um, agree to that extent um, that competitiveness is making it better, not worse. Um, just to what Ben was talking about, about the educational value and purpose possibly being lost, um, I don't want us to get too deep down the rabbit hole of how invention of fact affects uh, the educational value of mock trial. I don't know that I completely agree with what Ben was saying. I also don't know that I completely disagree. Um, I think that there are some aspects to it that make it just impossible to go to fight against. I think that like, I don't want to, you know, there are some inventions where they break the case to a point of there's no way for someone to cross a witness that is saying, I lied in my, my, my affidavit. You know, the second you get into that realm, it's like, okay, well then, you know, everything else is out the window. Like you can, you know, cross them on, you know, sir, ma'am, are you aware that you've just committed perjury? Like, I mean, but other than that, there isn't a whole lot else to do. And I think that that's no fun. That's not really interesting. And that does lose some educational value. But I think that the simple invention of fact in itself is not necessarily um, losing educational value. I think there's a lot to be learned about, like, how do we deal with, with, you know, some wild, crazy theory? You know, what can you say to, to make sure that, you know, you keep the jury grounded in what actually happened? And I think that that is an important skill to be able to do um, and to, to make it artful. And to a certain extent on the defense, I get what Ben's saying about the ethics. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that you should, you know, make up, you know, a child predator or, you know, anything horrible like that. But I, I do think there's some room for like, you know, as a defense, you know, it, is there a hole in their case? Is there some hole that I can fill with some, you know, masked figure that I can point the finger to and say, hey, maybe they should have looked at this person. I think there's a lot of value in that. That's a really important thing to do as a defense attorney. And there's a lot to be gained from learning how to think that way. So I definitely think that it's, uh, not losing educational value from competitiveness and in, invention of fact in itself is not necessarily losing the educational value. Certain aspects of it, though, I definitely can agree does. Yeah, yeah. Just the one last thing I'll say on that: like, I I don't think invention of fact is responsible for like this like mass degradation of value in 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 this activity. I just think that uh, when we choose a theory, when we try to decide to run a theory, for the most part, like. There's also like, I don't love to run theories that feel like absurd, I guess is the best way of putting it. Now, there's a couple of teams who've hit us this year who might question that principle based on one theory that we were running, but it was just something we were trying out. But I, I guess my central point is I cannot give a great answer on exactly why I feel like this activity is a little bit less educational than maybe I experienced that it used to be. And as I think about it, I could see an argument that the competitive nature of this activity at the high levels is a challenge. Like, for example, there's nothing educational about orcs. Like, mm -hmm. the only education for orcs is like, life is hell sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, but there's an extreme educational value at nationals. Uh, and I'm not really sure there's a great fix for that so I, I think the question is a good one and 
just like a lot of the other issues we're dealing with this community, we got to put our heads together and say, hey, are we continuing to serve our educational mission and how can we do better? Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree. I think that it's something that we do kind of all need to pay attention to. Um, I totally agree with the, the orcs and nationals comment. Orc sucks. Nationals is the best. I wish that every team could experience nationals and none of us had to ever experience orcs, but that is not the way it goes. Uh, to move on to our next question, uh, we have one from Faith Blank, and this was actually sent to us on Facebook. Um, this has multiple parts, so I'll try to do them uh, in a few different sections. But uh, essentially, this person said, for context, I competed a relatively new student-run program. So a couple of questions about getting the program off the ground. The first question was, what advice do you have for students learning to run a program? Uh, what do you think are the biggest mistakes new teams make? What are your opinions on invention of material fact and how far that rule goes when it comes to case theory? Are there any strategies which you would say are mock trial faux pas? And any and all advice you have for running programs that aren't that don't have an established alumni network, lots of funding would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> Not, no, nothing there to cover, right? There's just 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 a couple simple topics, <laughs> right? Right, just just a few. Um, I'll, I'll start by saying the invention of material fact stuff. Uh, We've talked about it a little bit. We'll talk about it again when we get to the memo. I'll hold off on it for a second right now. Um, yeah. As far as the you know being a young new program, I think that I can speak from personal experience when I say that I've been a part of a program that is brand brand new and figuring out how that works is tough. Uh, the biggest piece of advice I would give you is don't try to get to blow yourself up too quickly. Um, and what I mean by that is don't try to expand just because. UCLA and Florida and Rhodes all have four or five teams. You know, you, you don't need that many teams. Start with one, make it a good team of people that are all committed, that all want to be there, and and work from there. And and let your allow yourself to have a few years to figure it all out. Start going to a couple of invitationals, learn from your mistakes, see what other teams are doing. You know, try not to straight copy them, but learn from what other teams are doing better than you. Um, the other thing I would say is while it says you know, don't have established alumni network, a lot of teams are really good about you know, being supportive and letting you come and watch, watch uh, you know, invitational rounds. Find whatever major city you're around. Go to the big tournament that happens there. And go watch some of the top teams compete against each other. There's nothing against it. And I think it's a really great way to see mock trial at the really high levels um, and to kind of figure out, wow, what are these other teams doing that works so well for them? I think there's a lot to be learned from there. I know that Haverford, you know, in our second year, we went to, uh, we all drove up to New York and watched the downtown. And it was really helpful for us in figuring out what are these top teams doing? What works so well for them? Um, to the biggest mistakes question, I think the biggest mistake that new teams make, uh, the first one I would say is they they try to do what other teams are doing when they're not at that level yet. And I, I know I just kind of said, watch from the good teams and learn from them. But I don't think that everyone has the ability to, you know, call a hostile witness and, and make it work really well. Um, you know, just because you see someone else do it really well doesn't mean that you should do it. Learn from what they're doing well and try to take away the general concepts of, okay, like, this is what is compelling. This is how it, it, it looks. 
but I don't think every little intricacy and, you know, don't try to take another team's theme and, and make it work for your theory. Um, you know, make your theme and your theory your own. Don't, don't just copy someone else's. But I, I also just think that in general, some new teams uh, are just lacking confidence and, and are intimidated by the name of the other team that they're playing. And there's no reason for you to be that way. Um, you need to go into every round confident that you can compete, that you're ready to go. And when you have that confidence and you have that attitude, then it's going to show in trial and you're going to actually do a lot better. Uh, not to do too much anecdoting, but again, like I still remember when we were a young program, we would play teams that were much more established. And it was really intimidating at first of like, oh my gosh, like how could we possibly beat fill in the blank established team? And it was kind of until we said, screw it, we're just as good as them. We don't need to go into rounds being scared that we started beating them and we started saying, you know, screw it. Like we can compete with them. They should be afraid of us. You know, we shouldn't be afraid of them and, and it'll start to turn around. Um, I think that that addressed most of the questions. I'm kind of looking back to make sure I got to all of it before I kick it to Ben, um, to the lots of funding question. Uh, just if, if you don't have a lot of funding or, or established alumni, I think that it, it sucks. Like when you when you first start out and you don't have a lot of funding, um, or if you've been going for a while and you don't have a lot of funding, it really sucks. It sucks to ask people to chip in money for this activity. It would be nice if it could be free for everyone, obviously. Um, to a certain extent, you have to do what you have to do. But I would say don't don't hesitate to pass up an invitational that's nearby. You know, I'm not sure exactly what region you're in. If you're in the Northeast, I guarantee you there are three to four invitationals that are within, you know, an hour to two hours likely from you. Um, you can find a couple of them. And even if there aren't a ton of other invitationals around, you know, try to set up a scrimmage with a nearby team. Nothing beats practice. It's just the best thing to improve upon. And if you don't have the funding to get hotel rooms and, you know, uh, wherever else, if you may be traveling long distances, try to find some way to practice nearby with the other teams around you, whether it's at nearby invitationals or through small scrimmages or whatever you have to do. Um, cause there's nothing that'll replace that. Uh, I think I got to just about everything, Ben, I'll, I'll kick it <laughs> to you and see if I think of anything else. Just a couple quick thoughts. Um, cause I remember, I mean, 2011 was when our program found was founded and I was there and I remember being a new program quite well. We, you know, it's not that long ago that we were there, uh, picking up where Drew left off as to funding. Funding is hard. We're fortunate that over the last several years, we've built up a pretty strong budget, but didn't used to be that way. Uh, ask anyone for money, like, like anyone, if you're at your university, go to every department, Find the department heads, go to every single department head, say, hey, does your department, you know, find a way to connect, you know, my uh, B team, uh, middle attorney's ex-girlfriend's cousin is a biology major. Would you consider chipping in 500 bucks, right? What's the worst thing that can happen? They say no, right? But surprisingly, they might say yes, because then at their board meeting, they can go and say, hey, we gave mock trail. 500 bucks. And they're like, what's mock trail? And they're like, I think it's a trail hiking activity and close enough, right? It doesn't matter. They like academic institutions often have times have money in strange places, right? So ask everyone for money. Be persistent. Do not be afraid to do that, right? Asking for money sucks, but you know what is fun? Getting money, 
right? <laughs> so if you ask a lot of people for money, some of them are going to give it to you. Uh, do crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is no fun. We do it every year. It sucks. I hate it. But like we get several thousand dollars from it every year. It's an important part of, of our funding. Uh, a lot of schools, our school has a built-in crowdfunding platform, so we don't have to pay, you know, go fund starter or whatever, like 5% of our profits. Uh, so, you know, look for opportunities like that. Uh, just like, don't give up, be persistent, look in every, you know, look under every couch cushion, save money wherever you can and build a network, right? Like go through, you'd be amazed the combination of Google and LinkedIn, how many al attorney alumni you can find in your area who are willing to chip in some money. Right. So just like spend that time, you know, all of you sitting around one of your teammates dinner table with a Google Doc open, making lists of people that you can ask money for. Like you're not going to get it unless you go out and get it. Uh, as for running a program, uh, I'm going to echo a lot of what Drew said. I'm not going to try to repeat anything that he said. The one thing that I will say is like I kind of look at this under the like Miss Frizzle approach, like take chances, make mistakes, get messy. Like you are not going to walk in and be great from the beginning, right? Like this number of stories I could tell of dumb things that we did when we were trying to figure out what this activity was like, dumb things that I did, you know, when I was competing or when I was a coach early on that I look back on and cringe, but you know what? We made mistakes. We got a little messy and we figured out what worked and what didn't. So like everything Drew said, find invitationals, find scrimmages, practice, practice, practice. You've run your direct five times. Cool. Run it 20 times more, like change it. Like look at it every single day. Look at it from a fresh perspective. Look at it when you're pissed off. Look at it when you're happy. Look at it when you're maybe a little tipsy, like, like, you know, like we don't endorse drinking under the age of 21, but like, <laughs> like just every, you cannot think about this stuff too much. Right. So my approach to these things is just like the best programs immerse themselves in this activity from from start to finish. So like there is no magic way to go from being new to being great. You've got to put in the hours and hours mm -hmm. of work. Uh, and when you do it and you get there, then everyone's going to expect you to be able to keep doing it. And you've got to put in even more effort and more work to keep doing it. So like this activity, there there are no shortcuts. You know, nobody gets to the top by lucking their way there. If you're at the top, it's because you earned it. And, you know, if you're one of those new programs, there is no substitute for just like working extremely hard at everything that you do um, so that when you walk in the courtroom, you're just as prepared. And like Drew said, you don't have to be afraid of that team on the other side because you just outwork them. I, I Again, Ben said a lot of things I totally agree with. I'll add one more thing. Be nice to the other teams that you face in round. Be yes. nice to every single person you meet. Be nice to every tournament host that invites you. Send a thousand emails being grateful, asking for a spot in an invitational. You'll be surprised. Like A, you can get them. And B, like when you face someone round and they're really nice to you and you're like, wow, that was just a really friendly, nice team then you want to invite them back. You want to set up a scrimmage. You want to find time to work with that team in the future because it's nice to go against people that are also nice. And I think that sometimes there's this, one of the other parts was like a, a mock trial faux pas. And I know that this was something that uh, 
actually have heard had in our first year. We won the Spirit of Amta Award at our first ever regionals, in which I think they went like two and six or something really bad, and they were terrible. Like they objectively were, and they came back from like, okay, we can never win Spirit of Amta Award again. Like that's terrible. Like that's just a pity award. It's not. Like it's it's an award for being nice, and it's an award for being you know exhibiting all of the qualities that we want to strive for in AMTA. And the year after that, we were like, okay, we have to be mean to everyone that we face in round. We can't win SPAMTA. Like we need to be taken seriously. And I think that that was a big mistake that we made of like thinking that you need to be mean to be good. It's, <laughs> it's not true. And I think that since then we were like, oh, like that kind of wasn't fun. It's way better for just like nice to other people. And let me tell you when there's a team that does really well and wins Spirit of Amta. Like that says that teams just really like them and they're just a really nice, good program. That's a program that gets invited back, like always. And and even if you're not good, again, if you're nice, like people will want to help you and want to support you. But if you're mean and rude and obnoxious, then people are like, all right, screw you. Like, you know, I beat you. Go away now. And one other quick thing on that. Uh, you know who really likes Spirit of Amta? People who will give you money. You know, people, you know, like people's grandparents, like, yeah, they think it's great that you won. But if you say we, we did okay at this tournament, but we won the award for being the most professional and collegial team, uh, attorneys, like, yeah, sportsmanship, like attorneys will want to, you know, professors, people with money, like that. I tell my team all the time, I want them to win spam for two reasons. One, because I think it's really important. I care about it. And my team understands that I'm serious about that. And number two, because I can sell that. I can sell we're a really good team who also is respected and that people think are nice and are, you know, good to go against, not just because they're talented, but because they're kind and, and objectively friendly. So like, don't, I, I, I could, that is probably the best advice that you will get is what Drew said, which is take the spirit of AMTA and how you treat your fellow competitors seriously, because every one of you out there who listens to this knows that team in the area that you're like, mm -hmm. those people are assholes, you know, like we don't want to talk to them and you don't want to be that team. You just, you just don't. Moving on to our next question. This is another question that came to us via the impeachments forum from winter did it, uh, which is interesting. Uh, because Winter wasn't accused of doing anything, but we'll go with it. So it says, it seems like a lot of TBC talent graduated last year. That's true. I believe it was either 13 or 14 of the 16. So who are the competitors that we don't know, but should? So Drew, I think I'll kick it to you first. Who are some names here? Who are the competitors that we don't know, but we should? So uh, I'll start with the competitors that we do know. The three returning competitors, Regina Campbell, Sydney Gaskins, and Chris Grant, if Chris Grant is still competing, um, obviously should be should be known, are likely to be at trial by combat unless some strange circumstances happen, and they're there for good reason. Outside of them, um, it, it's a good question. I, I think that we're kind of in this vacuum right now where we're looking for some people to step up um, after a, in my humble opinion, very strong year just graduated. Um, I think that if I have to choose some names, I think that um, outside of those three, I think that the couple of like standout performers that I've seen recently, um, Kinsey Clark of Yale, um, Kinsey's actually sanctioned, so I'm not sure how that will work with uh, 
trial by combat and the rest of that. I, it shouldn't really affect trial by combat, but it will affect orcs and nationals. Um, but um, absolutely a phenomenal competitor and just a sophomore, so definitely someone to be looking at for the future. Um, I also think that uh, from Yale again, Allison Dew is probably one of the top defendants I've seen. She's fantastic. Um, and she's a, a senior who is not um, sanctioned anyway, so she absolutely has a shot at making anything this year. Um, Papa Yasin Cherry of uh, NYU is the president of their program this year and has probably the most standout voice of anyone in mock trial. Um, these may be people that are pretty well known. That's kind of because they're really good and, and people should know them. Um, I think that the the person that I will say that I think that probably less people have heard of is someone that I saw this uh, at, at the weekend at Yale, and it's B. Brawley of South Carolina. Um, I hadn't ever seen South Carolina go before. I thought they were exceptional this weekend. I thought they were really, really good. And this girl like kills it. I mean, she was the the strongest attorney on their bench, in my opinion, and by most of the other judges there, seeing as she won an award. Um, I really think she's someone for people to keep their eye on. She really, really killed it. And I would love to see her uh, go again. I think that she was fantastic. And I think that probably someone that less people have heard of. Um, I, I kind of agree with Ben to the extent I don't want to go through a ton of people. Um, but I, if I needed to choose you know, someone specific, I'd say B. Brawley. Uh, other than that, though, it's a lot of usual suspects from usual programs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, is there anything I've missed, Ben? I know you didn't want to really mention it too much, but. Yeah, the only name I think I'll say specifically, and I'll say this because this person has kind of been discussed on our podcast before. Uh, so early in the season, way back at GW's tournament, uh, I scouted around involving Cincinnati and uh, Julia Grave competed, who was uh, Steven Johnson's partner at Trial by Combat. Uh, and she's won several awards this fall, and it was very evident why <laughs> from the beginning. Uh I Steven was already a very decorated competitor before trial by combat, but I'd be very curious to see how many of his interesting ideas uh, were his and how many were Julia's because I saw her execute some similar things at uh, the tournament that I scouted her at. And I thought she was stellar. I thought she was really a powerful speaker. She had a really, really powerful defendant cross. And this is two months after the case came out and seems to only be getting stronger based on the individual awards. Uh, so I think that's a name to watch out for. I think she could definitely be a candidate for TBC. Um, I can't think of a whole lot of others. I've seen several strong attorneys on the circuit. Several of the names that have been winning attorney awards are the names that you would sort of expect. Uh, so I don't think I could pick out anyone else right this moment, but I do think uh, one of the fun things that's going to be about trial by combat this year is you know, remember we talked about how uh, in the division that we were in, in uh, I think it was the Galusa division of nationals last year, the top like six or seven names were all uh, the, that were all Americans were all TBC competitors. Well, I believe of that entire list, Sydney was the only non-senior. So like the, it is wide open in terms of, I mean, there a lot of last year's all Americans graduated. I think the vast majority of them did. So uh, it will be very interesting to see. I think you're going to see a radically different field uh, with much less continuity. You know, last year, I think there were six or seven people who did it for their second year. 
Uh, and this year, I mean, at most there will be three, which I think will be a lot of fun. Hey, class of 2019, the strongest mock trial year. Prove me wrong. <laughs> uh, so moving forward, uh, we had a question from I object via impeachments. Uh, this question was, with the Nationals controversy at the forefront of everyone's memories, do you think that the teams have been dash will be more cautious with towing the line for inventions, more ambitious in pushing the line, or neither? Um, in my opinion, it's making people more cautious. I think that uh, – People don't want to get sanctioned. I would hope not. I think that this is definitely kind of drawn a line in the sand of, okay, if you cross it again, like this is what happens. Serious, serious stuff. And I think that that will make people definitely more, more careful about it. Uh, again, we're going to discuss the memo after the break that was just recently released. But I definitely think that people are going to be careful. I think that people, you know, really cared a lot about what that memo said for this exact reason that people want to follow the rules. I, I truly believe that no one wants to cheat. No one is saying, ha ha ha, like, let me figure out a way to cheat and beat people by cheat. I think that people want to follow the rules. I think that sometimes they just unintentionally are, are not following the rules and that that's, that is the purpose of this. And that is why people need to pay attention to it. Um, and probably, probably a good thing uh, if there is some good to come from it is that people are paying attention, people are talking about it, and hopefully it will result in everyone getting a more robust and fair understanding of how to invent or, or invent fairly. Yeah, I pretty much agree. I think that teams are being more cautious. I think that's kind of the understandable result of this, and I think that's probably the desired outcome as a result of this. Uh, I... We'll be interested to see when we get to AMTA season. I also think we're in a little bit of an apples to oranges situation here with a case with an unrestricted defendant because that's a big, big difference. And I will be very interested to see if the Nationals case, once we get there, also has an unrestricted defendant uh, because I kind of hope it does because I think that that would be the most sort of apt comparison. Uh, but I, I generally think that what you were saying is right, that that people, you know, I, if you're not scared to make stuff up after after what happened to Yale, I'm not really sure what can scare you because that <laughs> was about as draconian as it gets, uh, you know, short of a full, you know, like program death penalty that that's about as tough as it gets. So I think it's making people more cautious i think it's causing people part of the consternation about the rules is i think it's causing people to look at them and try to understand them and ask questions and ask clarifications which may be up until just a couple of years ago when these rules started to let's be honest here get enforced again i uh, you know people weren't doing that as much so my impression generally has been that people are being a little bit more cautious and clearly and quite frankly the case was written with that in mind i mean the fact that we've talked about before like you can't like this year the defendant can't contradict what they told the police which was not the case in previous years with unrestricted defendants uh that alone i think shows that um teams should be more cautious and the case is written sort of to encourage teams to be like hey if if you think this is borderline you probably shouldn't do it the one thing i'll say is that i don't think that it means that teams aren't trying things in the invitational season I think that we see this every year that teams are kind of willing to to you know make mistakes during the invitational season, sure. right? And and figure it out for the empty season. So I I personally will say that I think that 
I've definitely seen a lot of outlandish theories so far. I don't think I've seen any that I, I view as as inventions to the, the extent that they would be improper or anything like that. But I think a lot of things are kind of going for out there theories. I think by the time we get to regionals, my expectation is that it's going to be very tame. People are going to really try to do things in that very kind of textbook way that isn't going to be crossing any lines, isn't going to be, you know, stirring the pot at all. Um, again, just because of this, you know, people don't want to get in trouble. So that is what I think everyone expected would happen from giving the sanctions that they did. Yeah. So going to our last question, uh, this one is another question from impeachment and this comes from sparkle and shade. And, uh, the first part of the question deals with improper invention, which we're going to get into uh, when we talk after the break. Uh, but the second part is what advice would you give to alums who are now coaching? Is there anything that you do or have done with regard to practice and preparation that you think all teams should do? It's a great, great question, right? Because one of the toughest things to do as a recent alum is to transition into coaching. Uh, I, first of all, I think that that should be a formal process, right? Like at a certain point, you have to change over from the alum who won't leave to like a person who is designated in some form or another. Uh, we have a formal process by which coaches are designated. I, it's, the authority is designated to me as the head coach and I get to choose who our coaches are. And we have people who help us from time to time who are not coaches. I think the primary thing that I would say is to like establish very clearly what your role is and what your boundaries are. One of the toughest things is going to be that if you start coaching right away after you graduate, you are going to be coaching alongside people that you competed with, people that you are friends with. That is not an easy thing to do. Uh, it is challenging because you're not, it's different. Even if you're coaching with them and you're at all the tournaments, you're not in the huddles. You're not kind of in the trenches as much with them and, and it changes things. And You have to recognize that. You also have to set boundaries in terms of like when you're not a coach, when you like get away from things and when you are, you know, taking time for yourself, basically like once you leave to a certain extent, you need to leave. And if you come back as a coach, then you should establish that role in terms of being successful as a coach. The one thing that I will say is there is no, it, it kind of goes back to what I say about almost everything. There's no substitute for just working extremely hard. Uh, go judge some rounds. Because I think that judging will open your eyes so much to things that competitors don't understand. Things like how boring some of these rounds can be. Things like how quickly, you know, you you craft a question and answer that you think are perfect and are going to nail the, uh, the person. But the attorney who's judging is sitting there thinking about the, you know, hours they've got a bill or, you know, the lunch that they're going to eat. And they're going to miss what you're saying. So <clears throat> coaching is totally different from competing and you can't treat it like you're just like, you know, a competitor who's doing a sixth year who just technically can't compete. You've got to take a totally different approach on it and like really figure out what your identity and what your purpose is going to be as a coach within your program structure. I will say that I did a lot of listening and learning from Ben's answer as a alum who is trying to figure this all out. Um, uh, the only thing that I'll say, uh, I think that Ben hit almost everything on the uh, as a nail on the head. I, the thing that I'm encountering right now, I will say, is that trying to work with with Haverford's team right now as the as Ben correctly put it, uh, alum who just won't leave. Um, it's tough at times because 
I, I obviously want to help them in the ways that a coach would, but a, I'm not around enough to do that. And B, because I, I know so many of them and others I don't know at all, it's this awkward relationship um, in an unbalanced one where to some of them, I'm this random guy who they don't know who is trying to help them write their directs and crosses. Uh, and to other people, I am Drew, the guy that has competed with me for the last couple of years. So it, that makes it kind of a tough dynamic. Um, and I think that it's a tough one to to deal with. So I, I think that what Ben said is really, really accurate about like, you need to kind of come in with a new like, hey, I am now coaching, this is what I'm doing. And like, that needs to be taken seriously and, and separated from your time as a competitor. Um, I will say that coaching the, at the high school level for me has been a easier transition um, in terms of they only know me as a coach. So that's a little bit easier relations-wise to develop. But I definitely think that I'm kind of learning from my mistakes and figuring out um, what works and what doesn't from a coaching perspective. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that as a competitor, like, oh, this is how I understand this. This is how this works. But sometimes as a coach, you need to figure out, you know, different ways of, of doing things. And I compare it a lot to just, you know, general teaching. I mean, it's you are essentially teaching people how to do this activity and your style isn't going to work for everyone. And I think that's the biggest, biggest thing to keep in mind is that your style as a competitor is not going to be the same style of every single person that you coach and trying to force your style on all of them is not going to work well. There can be, you know, program things that, you know, you guys do that makes you successful, but each individual advocate is going to develop their style and their tone, the way that they like to handle various witnesses, the way that they like to do things. And if you tell them, you know, this is the only way you should do it, you know, you have to be sarcastic or you have to be really aggressive and loud, you know, that's just not the way that everyone works and, and it's not going to be successful that way. So be flexible, be willing to accept that your way is not the only way. Um, and yeah, just separate, make sure you make that separation clear. Well, I think we managed to get through quite a few questions. Um, I We really appreciate all the listeners out there who sent us in questions. If you sent us in a question and we didn't get to it, um, we just, we didn't have time and we've already taken a good chunk of time to answer the questions we got. Uh, so don't take it personally. We will probably do another one of these mailbag episodes in the future, but we're going to take a quick break. And then we got a couple other topics. We're going to talk about the case changes, the, the, um, Invention of Fact memo that just came out, a couple little things before we wrap up. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be right back to discuss some recent developments in the Amphi community. Welcome back to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. So for the second half of our our podcast for today, we're going to be discussing some of the recent developments that we've gotten in the last couple of weeks, um, starting with the case changes, then we'll move into the mid-year meeting uh, that happened with the AMTA board of directors and the memo that was attached to that uh, mid-year meeting. So uh, just to start with the case changes, uh, Ben, I'm going to kick it to you. Can you just go through with us? What were the general highlights to the case changes that we got? Yeah, a couple things. Uh, so one of them, Neil kind of previewed when we talked to him a little while ago. There were a couple of added stipulations or special instructions, I forget exactly which, dealing with uh, getting rid of some inappropriate theories, things having to do with maybe assaults or sexual assaults or, or anything like that, sort of akin to 
the uh, instruction that was added a while back, you know, preventing any suicide cases. Uh, I thought that a good thing that AMTA did and, and was glad to see that. Uh, they also did something that I really thought was great, which is they've changed the language of the rules and also the captain's form from more of like a gender binary based uh uh, set up to uh, identified pronouns. So now that's what you're putting onto the sheet instead of, you know, male or female, it's what pronouns you go by. Uh, I applaud AMTA for doing that. I think that was a very important and healthy thing for them to do uh, that will continue to uh, move us forward in terms of being inclusive to everyone in this activity. Uh, in terms of the actual content of the case, it did not change a whole lot substantially. Uh, it did move the case in the direction of the prosecution a little bit more, which is not surprising. This was a mostly balanced case in the fall. I think it favored prosecution by about a point and a half, if I recall correctly. And statistically, cases, especially criminal cases, tend to move towards the defense over time. So you saw Chesney's investigation was cleaned up a little bit. Um, the prosecution's expert got a little bit stronger. The defense's expert uh, I won't say got a lot weaker, but I think maybe a little bit more than got a little bit weaker. Uh, so kind of in the middle there, uh, Lopez definitely, it, Lopez is not as easy to use. They weren't already particularly easy to use, um, but they're definitely not quite as easy to use as they were. And then there were just some small uh, edits here and there, kind of like punching up various character witnesses to you know, allow them to be used in different ways. I think if you were to dig into it, you'd see that those correspond with how much a certain witness is being called on one side versus the other. But generally, as is the case when you deal with a case that seems to be largely balanced with a fairly diverse uh, call order set, they did not change the case, particularly substantively, as far as I could tell. Drew, Drew any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I'll say that I, I, for the most part, agree. I don't think this was a radical change. I will say that I was a little bit surprised, given the, uh, given given the memo that was released on the, you know, distribution and the case balance. Um, the fact that we have roughly about two thirds of of uh, teams choosing to uh, pursue aggravated murder, and you get the experts. I would have, in my mind, thought they would want to approach trying to get back to 50% there. But seeing as the changes that were given to Quincy and Lopez, I, I would expect that this is going to be more teams pursuing uh, murder over manslaughter. Um, just, uh, you know, when, when you make Quincy better and Lopez worse, which I think it's pretty fair to say that they made Quincy better and Lopez worse, uh, you're expecting more more teams willing to then prosecute manslaughter or prosecute murder i apologize over the manslaughter since they get that that improved witness um yeah i i think that it makes sense though what they did as far as making the prosecution a little bit stronger when you've got a the rounds three and four difference was right now i think 47.9 versus 47.5 is what the memo said um that's so so close you know that that's gonna end up becoming a fairly cited defense case if nothing changes. But at the same time, it's close enough that you don't want to change too much um, because clearly it is a fairly balanced case as is and we don't want to change that around too much. So it definitely looks pretty good for the most part. And I think that uh, I think the case changes were fair. I think that they didn't make anything devastating for either side. Um, but I think that they definitely added a couple things to make the prosecution's life a little bit easier, just seeing as there are a lot of different avenues that offense can go down. I'm really glad you brought up the part about uh, murder versus manslaughter, because that was 
something that was interesting to me and I agree with what you said. I was a little bit surprised that they did not do something to maybe try to attract teams in that direction a little bit. Uh, I am fascinated by the role that the manslaughter charge plays in this year's case uh, because just the threat of it kind of like makes your prep harder because like, you know, for example, at Gamgee, we did four trials. All four of them were murder trials. All four of them were the exact same six witnesses. Like all four, te- all four trials, the prosecution called Chesney, Dews, and Quincy, and the defense called Lopez, Lee, and Ryder. Uh, and it was very annoying. Uh, and I, <laughs> like our manslaughter defense wasn't as strong as our murder defense was, but I kind of wanted someone to run manslaughter just so I could see something different. Uh, but it will be very interesting to see Who's the top team? There will probably only be a few, but who's the top team uh, or a few top teams who understand that maybe there could be an advantage that uh, manslaughter brings them and chooses to pursue manslaughter? The one thing I will say, though, is uh, so Yale did their thing at their tournament where they collected um, data on like very on extra stuff that I believe they distributed to everyone so i don't think this comes as any surprise Mm -hmm. but one of the things i remember i don't have the document in front of me but i remember seeing in top rounds manslaughter defenses dominated you know i mean that's the smallest of sample sizes right but i really have no idea how that impacts things and i think that there's a lot of room for this case still to grow in terms of teams getting creative with maybe running manslaughter giving up that expert but being able to present a clear case and throwing off the other side, because quite frankly, you just, you're going to end up most likely calling a witness you don't particularly want to call when you're running a manslaughter defense. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that I'm excited to see some more teams pursue manslaughter. And the biggest thing to me is that it's a really different charge. Like, I think that a lot of teams make this mistake of saying, oh, I can just kind of do the same thing. Like, you really can't. I really think that they are substantially different in what you're trying to prove and what you need to prove. And I think that a lot of the things that the defense is going to try to do doesn't make sense anymore for for uh, a manslaughter case. And you know, in your head, you've got to figure out all these explanations for this and this and this. And it may be that you get a manslaughter case where none of that comes in, where none of that matters. So it is really different, and I agree with you, Ben, that I think that manslaughter forces the defense to be on their toes to kind of have to think about that. And I definitely wish that there was something, maybe an added exhibit or or just some some tweak somewhere that made manslaughter a little more appealing. Um, but as it is, I think that we're going to probably continue to see mostly murder trials just because, like I said, they've made the experts even better than they already were. Um, you know, I, I just I, I think that I don't expect that to change too much, but maybe us talking about it like this will influence people and we'll get a couple uh, more manslaughter cases and it'll keep it all interesting. So to move on uh, to our next topic, we wanted to mention quickly the mid-year meeting that happened. Um, there weren't a ton of uh, crazy changes at the mid-year meeting. Um, and like I said, we'll, we'll talk about the memo in a bit. One of the big things that happened was the the changes to the orcs pairing system. Um, we're going to hold off on that discussion, know that it has been changed, um, and we will get into it a little bit later. 
um, probably when we get a little bit closer to work season. Um, and we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll figure that out then. Um, but the other uh, main thing that, that changed from the, uh, the mid-year meeting was the way that they are going to allocate bids. Um, they've basically just rewritten it for regionals um, just because now the regionals are a lot smaller. Um, for people that, that want to go to the mid-year meeting, it's the seventh page that has the little uh, chart that I think is most helpful to view it. But basically, the baseline has gone down from seven to six bids. So basically, each regional will have six bids allocated from uh, uh, from it to, to orcs. And then based on how many teams you have, you will lose some of those bids if you do not have as many teams. So they have a range from 18 to 20, at least 18, fewer than 20 is lose one, at least 15, fewer than 18, lose two, 12 to 15, three, so on. I'll go through all of it. Um, and similarly, as, as it's been with the old system, um, when there are some extra bids, they will allocate those kind of top down um, to add to a couple of the, the larger tournaments. I I'm honestly not looking at it right now, but I believe that there are a couple of tournaments that have as many as 26 or 27 teams. So they'll probably end up getting another bid, but that's not set in stone anywhere. But, you know, we can expect that to happen at some point. So I don't really think this is a dramatic change from what people were expecting. But again, it's just kind of adapting to this new style where we have a ton of regionals, but they're on the smaller side now. So I think that covers all of the details. The reason that I wanted to talk about this is that I think AMTA has done a pretty poor job of marketing this change and making sure that people are aware of it. And I think it is a bigger change than people understand for two reasons. The main one, I mean, the primary reason is just it's it's a big change from every year. Like usually like regionals have seven and oftentimes eight bids to, to orcs and, and uh you know, that makes a big difference. That that extra bid makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference on the round four pairings when you're dealing with making the in and the out brackets in terms of who's eligible and who those top teams are playing at the bottom of the flipped bracket. But last year, we had fewer regionals and we had nine orcs, right? And so last year, more teams got to compete at orcs than ever before and more programs got to compete at orcs than ever before because we had nine orcs. And so we had a massive number of open bids. Amto was literally one open bid away from starting to have to invite four and four teams to orcs uh, as open bids, right? They the last four and a half accepted that spot. Otherwise there would have been a four and four team that was invited with an open bid this year. There's more regionals. There's now 32 regionals and we are back down to eight orcs. That makes a massive difference, right? That means that regionals are smaller which means that in certain situations, power may be concentrated a little bit more. I'm sure, I, I think from looking at it, Desky did a, and his group did a fantastic job of allocating things as best they can. But, you know, you can only do so much, particularly, I think, in regions like the North, Northeast where there's so much concentrated power. And there are going to be a very, very, very small number of open bids this year. There's always going to be a few, right? UCLA, you know, Q, R, and H are going to create a couple, uh, you know, I don't know why H slipped in there, but they're going to create a couple of open bids. Um, and, you know, there's always going to be some. But I, this is a big 
change for most regionals you're only going to have six bids out it is essentially like most regionals now have the pressure cooker aspect of orcs that you can't go in there and think that five and three is going to get you out last year five and three you know you were like high up on the open bid list this year there's probably going to be 20 or 30 five and three teams that that that's the end of their season yeah so uh, look, this gets into a much larger conversation about the size of Amta because, of course, there's more teams registered than ever before, just like there has been every year for the last couple of years. So our our numbers are we're straining at the seams of what we can handle. But I really wish that Amta had made an effort to make it really clear to people through, I don't know whether it would be like a note in the case or an email that would go out to everyone or an announcement or they could have sent someone to talk to us about it or something like that. Uh, because I think this is going to be a rude awakening for some teams, uh, given the drastic change from last year to this year. Yeah, I, Ben, I really agree. I mean, I think that, it, you know, I'm glad that we are talking about it because it definitely is not being heavily discussed by people, in my opinion. Um, I think that one of the things that you were talking about that people aren't realizing is, is yeah, like, you can't afford to to drop a whole round really anymore. I mean, like you, if you do, you better be perfect the rest of the way through, and that does make regionals feel very different. Like, look, they are they're a lot more regional, so they're able to distribute power much more. Uh, you know, I'll say more than in the past. So I think that hopefully a lot of people are thinking to themselves, "Oh, this doesn't mm-hmm. look as bad as it's been in past years," but it doesn't look as bad because you have a less, you have fewer bits. Um, and it doesn't look as bad because there are going to be fewer open bids. I mean, it, it's t- it's going to make it much much harder to make it to orcs this year than it was last year. Um, and I I gotta say, it's definitely going to be something that's that's tough on a lot of teams. I think that the nice thing about nine orcs last year was that it gave a ton of people an opportunity to go to orcs that doesn't that don't normally get it, and it meant that a lot of people had that excitement of oh my gosh, we made it to orcs. This year, there are going to be a lot of teams that, you know, we can say, quote unquote, deserve to go to orcs that aren't going to get there. And I think that a lot of those teams that got there for the first one were like, oh, this is great. They're going to struggle to get back. Um, it's just going to be really competitive. It's not going to be a cakewalk at all. Um, you know, of course, they've put, you know, Haverford and UMBC in the same regional again. So we'll, <laughs> we'll be seeing each other there. But I mean, DC. And a lot of these other Northeast regionals, I'm looking and I'm saying, wow, they got only six bids. You know, it's just, yep. it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for sure. But, uh, you know, I, I do think this is something that we're, I, I hope that we will discuss more when we get um, in a couple, you know, in a month or so when we get closer to regionals and orcs for sure. Um, but definitely, I mean, it, it's something that everyone should pay attention to. Be aware that this is not the same as it was last year. I, I Truly, for the life of me, don't understand why we thought it was a good idea to remove an orcs um, this year. But decisions were made that are above our pay grade, as they say. Yeah, and I think that's a conversation like maybe when we talk about the new orcs pairing system on a future episode that we can delve into a little bit of the reasoning behind that. Because it was interesting being at the board meeting that there was a, a rule proposed to make that mandatory, that there would only be eight orcs. That rule did not pass, but we're still down to eight orcs and and it would be interesting to get a little bit more information about why that decision was made but our last topic has to do with something that was released in conjunction with those mid-year meeting minutes side note 
while we're discussing the mid-year meeting. I'll just toss in here. I'm going to say it every year when we talk about the mid-year meeting. It's absurd that the mid-year meeting is closed only to board members and board uh, candidates. I don't care if nothing interesting happens. It needs to be streamed, needs to be recorded, needs to be put online, and needs to be public. It's silly that this board of directors meeting is somehow as secretive as it is. Uh, that aside, uh, I'll get off my personal soapbox now uh, for what is, I know, a very popular opinion amongst the AMTA folk who listen to this podcast. Uh, the um, <laughs> the board of directors released a uh, guidance memorandum guidance memorandum that they had been promising for, for a little while, uh, compared by the Competition Response Committee on behalf of the AMTA Board of Directors. Uh, and the way it lists here, it says AMTA is issuing this memorandum to consolidate prior instructions and to further guide AMTA teams regarding the invention of fact rule and its enforcement. This memorandum does not modify the existing interpretation, existing invention of fact rule, rule 8.9. Rather, teams have often have questions about the invention of fact rule and its enforcement. And we want to make sure that the AMTA community has a common understanding. Because if there's one thing that works, it's thousands of students trying to become lawyers, developing a common understanding about anything. Um, but uh, I appreciate the effort that's gone into it. So they released this memo. It is, uh, what, eight pages long? I think it's approximately eight pages long. <laughs> and it delves into detail about the invention Sounds of like factor. Uh, Drew, you've read the memo, I'm sure. What are your thoughts on its contents? So this memorandum, I, I like that we are thinking that that people have said, "Hey, we need to write this. That we need to we need to explain to people what the what exactly this rule says." We just had this brutal sanction that was laid down. It's important that people actually understand what this rule is. Clearly, there's some misunderstandings around it. The problem is that I don't really feel like they clarified what they needed to clarify here. To me, the the big thing that I think people need and want to understand is the gray area. You know, what is a reasonable inference? What what constitutes um a, a reasonable inference and what what's valid? I think that there was a lot of information on what a material fact is and yes, like I don't really think that that was really ever in contention with people. I don't think that many people didn't agree that what a material fact was in it, it. It honestly, like, I was a little frustrated by the the fact that they seem to be saying that oh, creativity in mock trial is good when people get to come up with these backstories about witnesses because I I don't think that that's what anyone t- talks about when they say that like let's make mock trial creative like it's uh, like a witness having a backstory that like is from, you know, I'm from whatever country. That's why I have this accent. Like, I'm sorry, but that's just not creative. Like, that's just you, like how you chose to portray this witness. And like, it is what it is, but like, that's not what people mean when they say like, Oh, it's great to be creative. So I was a little bit frustrated by that. It just seemed like they were kind of out of touch to be making comments like that. But um, to me, and I apologize for being kind of curt with this, but I'm, a little bit frustrated based on the fact that we've been expecting this for so long and then this is what we got. But there's just like the the only thing they have about reasonable inference is um is basically this this bit where they explain if Armani Rodriguez affidavit had said, I did not like Parker from the moment that I laid eyes on her. It would be a reasonable inference from this statement that that uh, Armani Rodriguez saw Parker. It would not be a reasonable inference that Rodriguez undertook any action towards Parker that are otherwise specifically described in Rodriguez's affidavit because of Rodriguez's vague sentiment of dislike. 
Um, to me, what this says is that it is an unreasonable inference to state to add specificity to something. So uh, from my perception that this, I did not like Parker. You know, you can say that you didn't like Parker, but you cannot tell us why you didn't like Parker. You cannot add specificity to, I did not like Parker because X. First of all, I think that's kind of silly. Obviously, there is some reason why they didn't like her, or they can say that it's because they just happen to not like her. That is also a reason to explain why. I think that, to me, saying that you're not allowed to explain why you have this thing in your affidavit like doesn't really make any sense to me. Um, and I think that... I just I think that this is a silly way to be interpreting it, but if it's the way that it is, that's that's what they've said. And essentially, you cannot be adding specificity. My problem is that that is telling us what you cannot do. It is not saying what you can do. Um, and the example they give of what a reasonable inference is is they say that Rodriguez saw Parker. To me, like that's not a reasonable inference. That's just what it says. It says from the moment I laid eyes on her. Like that, that means that you saw them. Like, I just think that like, that's a, to me, that's a joke. If that's what we're saying, a reasonable inference is like, that's just not a reasonable inference. And the fact that this is the only example that's given, and this is the only explanation for what a reasonable inference is to me is just, it's just not sufficient. And I'm sorry, but it's just like, that's, that's, that is the whole thing that we want to be clear about. And it's, it's not what is, what's happened here. So I'm, pretty disappointed with this memo. I definitely think that it's, you know, they've made clear what what they view as improper in one example and, you know, I I understand I I understand they've made that clear that this that you cannot add specificity to things. I don't like it, but that's what the decision was, but I still don't think it's answering the questions that we need answered. I experienced two reactions to the memo. I had a little bit more of a positive reaction to the reasonable inference section, in part because I think I have largely just accepted that, like, if the board sat down and tried to write out several examples of what is a reasonable inference, I, I think they would end up hopelessly lost because it is a subjective concept which is why people i think people sometimes ask like well why is there a reasonable inference rule uh and there's a material fact invention rule but we only punish egregious violations and the reason is that egregious really means oh we can all agree on it right like like there are going to be situations where someone you know claims that something is a reasonable inference the other team says it isn't and the remedy is impeach and let the judges decide but sometimes things are so egregious that you've got to take additional steps beyond allowing the judges to handle it and i think i i think the reasonable inference example here that's given is is relatively helpful i think the point i will say this i'm very glad they highlighted the point about specificity because i think like quite frankly i think this is language that you saw in Yale's appeal documents and that Elizabeth used when we talked to her and that other people from different teams have used, which is, well, it doesn't contradict anything. And that's not the rule. And I think they did a pretty good job at the very least of explaining that. Um, 
The one thing I will say, though, so if you go down to the question and answer period, uh, it asks, can the CRC or someone else affiliated with AMTA advise us on whether certain testimony we intend to elicit violates the rules? And it says, generally speaking, no, the CRC and rules committees do not render advisory opinions. Uh, That's a mistake, in my opinion. I don't think that the CRC and rules committees should just like answer every question that's submitted, but advisory opinions absolutely be helpful in this context. There is no reason why the rules committee or the CRC shouldn't be able to uh, hear, like if something occurs at an invitational and there's film, to be able to hear that complaint and issue an advisory opinion, because that could probably save a lot of problems if they're able to say, we got these 10, if they say we will accept all invention of fact complaints from the invitational season. And we will choose if any are submitted to us that reach that level, whichever ones we believe to be egregious. And we will issue an opinion as to why we believe this is egregious. And here are the reasons that would give very specific guidance on here is how these rules apply to this specific case. Now I get these people are volunteers. They're not paid. I'm not expecting them to spend hours and hours and hours on this in the invitational season, but I don't see any harm to them informally adjudicating situations of egregious violations of these rules in the invitational season. If any of them occur and are reported to the CRC, I think that would be a helpful thing for them to do. And I just, I don't really see a whole lot of downside to it aside from the fact that it's, additional work for the people on that committee, which isn't insignificant. So my bottom line is kind of where I always end up on these issues, which is I'm not really convinced that we're ever going to get to a place where most people are going to be happy about this. Uh, I think that I agree with you that I would like to see more positive examples, more examples of this is a reasonable inference because you're right that the example of, you know, uh, they could draw the inference that I saw Parker. You're right. That's not an inference. That's a statement of fact that that is there in the affidavit. Um, I think maybe an example of that, like a reasonable inference would be that before they saw Parker, before that, that reference, they had never seen Parker before. Cause they say, I didn't like Parker from the moment I laid eyes on her. Well, presumably the first time they, they formed that opinion the first time that they saw Parker. So that witness you could reasonably infer had never seen Parker before that moment. I, I will tell you, can I just jump in? Like that, what you just said, like I totally agree with, but I think from, from reading this and from reading their response to some of the Yale stuff that they would say that you, that you can't say that, that there's nothing to suggest that. And like, that's not really like, that's unlikely to be a material fact, but like, I think like getting into like, Oh, because this happened, that means it didn't happen before. Like, I mean, that feels very similar to me to a lot of what Yale did on Sullivan that they were then criticized for. So like, you know, unlikely that something like that would ever be egregious. But like to that point, like I, I, I disagree with you. I think that they would, based on my reading this and maybe, you know, hey, Amta reps, if, if, if I'm reading this wrong, please let me know that, that I'm wrong about this. But I feel like what they have said is that that would be egregious if, if based on the line they've given – um, oh, I, I did not like Parker from the moment I laid eyes on her. That meant that they had that they had never seen Parker before. I don't know. I mean, I like I agree. Like I agree that that of course makes sense to me. Like I, I would hope that we can draw that conclusion. But 
I don't know. I feel like I, I'm trying to interpret it in the very tight, tight way that that I've been been reading. And I don't know. Like to me, it's just it's not super clear to me. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this. Um, so I, I totally agree, Ben, that there's no reason why they should say blanket statement. We're not going to give advisory opinions. I wish they would. I think it would get rid of a lot of the problems that that we have. Um, it, it doesn't really make sense to me why it's kind of downright like, no, we we won't we won't look at this. We won't help. I think it can be said like you know you can't expect a prompt response. Like we're busy people with lives and we're not guaranteeing you a response. But you know there's nothing wrong with asking. Um, I I would hope that that it would be. Um, and to, just to the last thing on the note of egregiousness, the, to me, at least in my mind, the way that I've always thought about this, and I wish there was a little more clarification on this as well. I've viewed egregious as when there is no in-trial remedy for it, when you can't just impeach them and show that they didn't, you know, them not putting in their affidavit, um, this really important thing makes sense. Like then it becomes egregious because there's no in trial remedy for it. Like to me, that's what it comes down to. Like when there's, you know, when you get to a situation where it's like, yes, I lied in my affidavit because of course, because of of this obvious reason that of course I had to lie in my affidavit. Oh yeah. The the lawyer had a gun to my head. That's why I I wrote all this. Like when someone says something like that, it's like, okay, well like, you know, there's nothing that can be done then. Um, other than saying, yeah, you committed perjury, like enjoy jail time. Um, so I, I I totally think that like to me that is clearly egregious. But where the line is drawn past that, like I don't think was ever really made clear. And I I wish it was because that to me again is where we need some clarification. I think that it's very arguable right now whether something that is absolutely could be dealt with in trial, um, and absolutely you know a a solid impeachment would show this person is you know is wrong or misstated their affidavit. Um, is is could have been dealt with and in that way in my mind would not be egregious i mean at the end of the day witnesses mess up and they will contradict their affidavit normally you just handle it by impeaching them i I don't think that like every little time someone you know slips up in trial and says you know no to the wrong question that constitutes a a egregious invention of fact like i mean i don't think anyone thinks that but you know i think that we just need some clarification along what is egregious and what's not and it just need like again it just needed to be a little bit clearer about that in my mind but i don't disagree with what you're saying there were some positives from it i'm not saying it was completely devoid of help but i just i had higher expectations i think for this memo i I was excited about it and this didn't in in always meet my expectations the the one thing i'll say in response to to that, and I don't know if I really disagree with anything you said, but I <laughs> I don't want to just kind of sound like a cop out here, but like I don't think we're that far away from a point where there's just not a lot more clarification to be had. Um, this is a subjective rule within a subjective activity using a subjective scoring measure. And that does not mean we should not continue to strive to improve. But, you know, Yale got the sanction that they got. And there is, I think, a minority, but a portion of our community who believes that 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 decision was wrongly decided, 
right? And there is nothing that the board or anyone who disagrees with them could do to dissuade them of that notion. They have perceived things in a certain way and understood the rules in a certain way to believe what they believe. And I'm not, you know, if you want my opinions, you can go back and listen to the episode that we did, you know, all two and a half hours of it. Um, so I think, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you that I think maybe there could have been more done here. But I, I think that the board would struggle to get much further into what it is that, you know, we're doing. But that goes back to my main point that I said a moment ago about advisory opinions. You know, I think in Maryland, there are uh, ethics, advisory ethics opinions that are issued on a regular basis for like dealing with attorney ethics issues, or I know judges ethics issues. And that's such a smart way to do it. Where if an issue comes up, the advisory board, the deciding board says, hey, if this issue comes up, here's how to handle it. And considering that case facts change from year to year, I I just I see no harm in that. So I think <laughs> like like every episode, we could spend the entire episode talking about invention of fact. But I do appreciate Amta, you know, um, putting out this memo. I encourage people to read it closely, and I also encourage people if you think <clears throat> that there is something in this memo, or something not in this memo that should be there, or something that was addressed in a way that you think is insufficient contact AMTA, reach out to Will or the other members, Brandon, members of the CRC, people you know, and give them feedback. Because like we've said before, and like members of the board have said on this podcast, it is not going to improve, uh, you know, your, your anonymous confession on mock trial confessions, it isn't going to make anything improve. But if you reach out and you say, here are my concerns, let me explain why, then you'll have a better shot, hopefully, uh, if the AMTA folks are following through on what they should be following through on in uh, you know, sort of effectuating real change on these particular issues. Yeah, I, I'll. I really agree with that last bit, Ben. I, it mock trial confessions is something that we don't always talk a lot about on this podcast, but it's just such a double, like not even double edged sword. It just, it just is like this sounding board, I think, for people to voice complaints, and it is the ultimate like. Mm. Let's voice them and do nothing on them. So don't just post a confession and expect something to happen. Like you need to take some like at least a, the bare minimum is like send an email. So like don't don't be that shitty person that just complains on my trial confessions and then doesn't do anything else about it. Um, I I'll just say this like to what you were just saying, Ben. Um, I think that because this is in the wake of the Yale sanctions. Um, and they they did provide a lot of resources on when you know when y'all did get sanctioned like hey this is this is why like this was their their explanation of that and that's not what this memo is supposed to be, but I think that to the extent that there were people that felt that they were confused by the sanctions or they said I'm not clear exactly what Yale did that that was so wrong or if people said oh like yeah I I feel like there was this thing that that wasn't super clear, um, I just think that this memo needed to do a little more to explain, hey, you know, this is how far you can go and this is the point where it becomes too much because clearly in their mind there is some line. There there is some point at which you're, you know, this is unreasonable now. This is our, this is an egregious invention. Um it because here's the honest truth. If there isn't a line, if we're not saying, oh, you know, 
this is what constitutes you know an invention of fact and this is an egregious invention of fact then then how can we sanction people on it like i i just don't really understand how we can say oh it's it's unclear it's ambiguous we're we're not really clear on it but we're clear that this is wrong like if you're clear that's wrong then you're clear that something else is right and i think that it's you know it is a cop out answer i'm sorry but it is to say like oh we're just going to you know leave it ambiguous and we'll figure it out like certainly there are some examples that are like really far out there like i said if someone claims that a lawyer put a gun to their head and that's why they wrote their affidavit the way they did of course that's an egregious invention of fact like i don't think anyone claims that you should be allowed to say that that's not creative that's dumb don't do that um but like I think there's a lot of room between that and what Yale did. And I think that for us to just say that they're the same thing, like, oh, yeah, it's obvious that that was wrong, I think is doing a real disservice to what actually happened. And I think that there just needs to be a little bit – there needs to be an attempt at a line drawn, in my opinion, of like this is what's fair, this is what's not. Um, Because until there is, it's – it's just not clear and it's in my mind not fair to be penalizing other people for not being able to get into their heads like to a certain extent if it's clear to some of the people that write the rule that enforce the rule what what this means but it's not to competitors and to to students that are actually doing it then i think that there's a huge power imbalance that we have to deal with that this memo is just not dealing with. So I don't mean to be like bashing AMTA. At the end of the day, I adore AMTA for a lot of the things that they do. Again, these are all volunteers. You know, they are giving hours and hours of time that does not go thanked, that does not get paid for. Um, and they do it because they care about this activity in ways that all of us hopefully do. So to that extent, Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you to those of people that took the time to write this memo. I believe that it was not something that happened overnight. Um, But as a competitor, as someone that has struggled with this for a long time, I do hope that this is not the final word. I hope that there is at least some more clarification that we have coming soon. And I hope that it comes in the form of these memos and not in the form of more teams getting sanctioned before they fully understand the rules. So that's all I kind of have to say on it. Again, I hope that people don't listen to this and think that I'm just trying to bash AMTA. I'm really not. Um, I think they're a wonderful group of people and I know many of them and they're all wonderful and awesome people. But uh, I just, I I was hoping for a little more on this memo, I guess. (laughs) Well, either way, we got to discuss a number of different things and most importantly, we hope everyone out there has a wonderful and happy holiday season uh, in whichever way that you celebrate. Absolutely. Uh, we hope that you get to do it uh, safely and happily with friends and family and loved ones. Uh, we're hoping this episode will be out well before the new year, but uh, Ben often has uh, <laughs> ambitions that don't always live up to reality. But, but you know, and of course, as usual, this episode ended up being a little longer than we expected it to, but that's sort of par for the course at this point. But we're just immensely thankful for everyone out there who chooses to take the time to listen to uh, us drone on and on about these things. We have deep affection for this activity and this community, and we're very grateful to play 
a small part in it. So Drew, happy holidays to you. I hope that you have a, a great one. And I look forward to continuing to talking to you as the season goes on. Absolutely. Happy holidays to everyone else. And thank you again for everyone that submitted the questions for the mailbag episode. Um, I, I just, I, I was blown away by how many people ended up uh, responding and sending in questions. It just shows how lively of a, of a listener base that we have accrued at this point, And we, we really appreciate it. It means a lot. So yeah, happy holidays, everyone. Yep. Thanks everybody. And until next time, this has been the mock review with Ben and Drew.